what is your baseline um, uh, from a from a two week perspective? And so I tell people go back around the next the last two weeks and look at your average score. The Aura Ring will like update it for you. The Leaf device always updates it for you, which is really good. Your Polar H10 will update it for you. Um, so so you know it, you need to know kind of how are you performing in the here and now. And the here and now is really within the last 14 days, within the last two weeks. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster, the show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Welcome to another episode of the High Performance Health Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Foster, and today I am joined by Dr. Jay Wiles. Now, for some time, listeners of this podcast have been messaging me to ask if I can get somebody who specializes in HRV and biofeedback on the show. And so I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Dr. Jay Wiles today because he's an absolute genius in this area. He works as a consultant for companies and organizations, practitioners, and and individual patients on nutritional psychology, health behavior change, applied psychophysiology, and health promotion, stroke disease prevention via complementary and integrative practices. And he's also board certified in Tai Chi for rehabilitation. He knows exactly how to interpret HRV data and how important it is to understand how to modulate your HRV, which is what a lot of people don't realize. They concentrate on what their numbers are and often compare their own scores to other people's. And what you'll learn on this episode is that you should only be comparing your score against your own and that what's actually really important is your ability to modulate it. So, I'm going to introduce you now to Dr. Jay. Um, he goes into great depth. So you may want to listen to this in a quiet space and even take some notes. Um, you can head over to my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com to download the show notes to this episode because it is quite detailed and um, enjoy it. Learn as much as you possibly can because he does dive into the detail, but he shows you exactly what devices you can use to A, track your HRV and B, actually use it in real time with biofeedback to actually modulate those scores and improve them. So this will really help you to start to understand how to manage stress um, and manage recovery importantly and how to incorporate resilience training and when you're maybe doing too much and when you need to dial things back, but also how to actually use devices in real time to physically modulate your HRV response. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. I hope so. And as always, please either leave me a review on iTunes so that I can help to get the message out to a wider audience. Um, DM me, share me and tag, um, share the podcast and tag me on Instagram. I love getting your feedback on all of those platforms. Um, so let me know what you think of this episode and enjoy it. Let me introduce you to Dr. J. So, Dr. J, um, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here today. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Appreciate you taking me on. 
Yeah, I'm very, very excited today. So I have a ton of questions, literally, on HRV. Uh It is uh, something that I myself have been paying a little bit more attention to recently and kind of getting into. So um, first of all, tell me more about your background, because I know that you specialize in psychophysiology and biofeedback and HRV. Can you just explain a little bit about yourself and what you do? Because it sounds very, very complicated and sciencey, (laughs) but I know you have a way of breaking it down quite simply. Yeah. So, you know, it it does sound complicated, but I like to make sure that it's practical and it's also something that is palatable and understandable. But like at the core, what I am kind of my discipline is I'm a clinical health psychologist, which means that I'm very interested in working with individuals and do work with individuals who have a kind of this uh, interconnection between mind and body physiological processes. So basically what that looks like is that instead of working with a clinical population, so those individuals who might suffer from things like major depressive disorder, any anxiety type disorders, bipolar disorder. I actually work more with individuals with health related problems. So things like chronic pain, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, and so forth. And so that's my background and training is in health psychology and that interconnection. But I kind of went a little bit more of an unconventional route as most health psychologists do and got a training in the field of biofeedback and in psychophysiology. And kind of we were talking off air just a second ago. And when we're talking about kind of this concept of psychophysiology. And basically all that concept means is that there is an interconnection, a bi-directional connection between our physiological processes and our emotional psychological processes. So when we affect change in one area, we see effective change in the other area and vice versa. And so, you know, kind of scouring the literature and doing some more research on kind of how could I utilize kind of the field and the science of psychophysiology, I came across a field which is called applied psychophysiology. So it's just applying the principles of psychophysiology into clinical practice. And that got me into researching things like HRV and the galvanic skin response and EEG biofeedback, or most people know it as neurofeedback. And all of these things just seemed very interesting to me because they weren't things that I was familiar with, but they made sense on a practical level. And also too, when I started looking at the research behind the efficacious um, treatments that, that, that can be provided with these modalities, I was floored. Uh, I was really kind of bought in. And so that led me down this path of kind of just getting into the research of psychophysiology and heart rate variability, and then also using it in my clinical practice, both from a consulting side and then also too from a clinical side. So I know that was kind of a, hopefully that wasn't too roundabout, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's where I am. No, that's awesome. It's amazing. So look, looking at um, HRV, first of all, if I kind of very, uh, I'll give the kind of my kind of idiot's explanation, I guess, <laughs> is um, what we're looking at here is obviously people know that we have our resting pulse um, and generally that a lower resting pulse is correlated with better health. But what we're looking at here in terms of HRV, HRV is the variability between those beats. So the heart doesn't beat like a metronome and actually having a higher variability in those beats is correlated generally with better states of health is that would that be fair and can you kind of elaborate and explain for people exactly what hrv is 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you did a really great job of just kind of like putting it all out there in a very simple to understand fashion because this can be quite confusing. And there are a lot of misunderstandings in regarding to HRV. And I think a lot of it stems from this idea that all of these new wearables, when we look at kind of like health trackers, have some type of HRV measurement built into it. But a lot of people don't really kind of go in knowing kind of fully what it is and they kind of mistake their measurement for something that it's not. And so I'd love to take time to unpack that later mm. on today. But yes, at its most simplistic kind of core foundational definition is that we're just looking at the time variance or the variation in time between each successive heartbeat. And so we look at that either from an EKG or from a PPG. So if people have things like the aura ring, like I have on that usually utilizes what we call a PPG sensor, which is just an infrared light sensor that detects the fluctuations of blood volume within the finger, or you can actually do it in the ear as well, just anywhere there is a pulse. Um, and so, uh, and so that, that's, that's kind of one way we do it is we look at the peaks between each of those successive heartbeats or pulses. And then on an EKG, we do it in an R wave or an R spike. We just look at the time between those. And like you said, the heart does not operate like a metronome. It actually needs to and, and should be arrhythmic. And a lot of people kind of hear that word initially. And they're like, oh, I thought arrhythmia is a bad thing. And it can be. There are variations of arrhythmia that are truly uh, deleterious to the body and can be quite damaging. However, arrhythmia Arrhythmia is something that we should be built on. And the reason that we need to have arrhythmia or we need to have these, these uh, kind of crazy variations of heartbeat is because that is a sign of psychological and physiological resilience. Resilience to internal and external or environmental stimuli or the ability to adjust, to change, and to stress. When we see the heart start to regulate itself, which would mean that there's limited or maybe even no heart rate variability, that's a bad sign. And what that is a bad sign of is that the heart is trying to adjust itself because it doesn't know what else to do. There's chaos going on in the body. So maybe we've overtrained or we've overreached. Maybe we're extremely stressed out and the heart is like, well, holy crap, what do I do here? And kind of what it does is, is that it starts to regulate itself. And we see the same amounts of variance in time in between successive heartbeats, or in other words, the arrhythmia goes down. And that is, should be kind of like that red flag or that light bulb that goes off to say, okay, time to check in on what's going on. Is there stress? Is there overtraining? Uh, am I about to have a heart attack? And it's not to say if you have low heart rate variability that you should just jump to that conclusion. But we do know that low heart rate variability is correlated with so many different things and can be used in so many different ways. Yeah, I saw actually um, on the, the podcast that you did, which was a really deep dive into it on Ben Greenfield's, mm -hmm. um, on the podcast that you co-host together. And actually you were talking in there about how heart rate variability is a really good indicator of whether somebody's going to have a cardiac issue mm -hmm. or even potentially a heart attack or a stroke. Um, yes. And is that because you see that the um, heart starts to become much more regular in its beating before that happens? Yeah, yeah. It starts to become extremely regulated right before a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. So we actually see people like, let's say if someone's averaging 10 milliseconds, um, sorry, I'll say uh, uh, an amplitude of 10 or 10 milliseconds difference, or they have a 10 on their aura ring. That's a better way to put it. Uh, if they uh, have that, then that's a pretty low score. But if they start to see that go down and they've had a previous myocardial infarction or heart attack, and they see it go down to two milliseconds to one milliseconds, that's somebody who, if they were 
or in my office, I would say, okay, immediately we need to run a full EKG. We need to see if there is, you know, potential um, arrhythmia that is the deleterious arrhythmia uh, because this is not a good thing. And actually, if we saw deleterious arrhythmia, we, you actually would see somebody with an extremely inflated HRV. Um, so you might see them go up from 300, 400, and that's because the arrhythmia is taking them all over the place. Um, so there are good arrhythmias, there are, good, there are bad arrhythmias, but when we start to see the heart become more like a metronome, that's a bad sign. And especially if they've had a previous heart attack, that's one of the largest indicators. HRV or the SDNN metric is one of the greatest measurements or indicators of potential or future uh, heart attacks. So it's, a, it's an extremely uh, valuable measure from a cardiovascular standpoint. Yeah, so a really important thing to be kind of keeping track on yourself now that oh, yeah. we have access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of what people should be looking for, so I think I think it might be Peter Atia talks about the fact that he generally has a lower HRV. And obviously we've mentioned that, you know, higher HRV is normally correlated with, with better health, but presumably for individuals, there are ranges, are there differences between men and women? What If someone's looking, you know, and they've got some data that they want to work with, what should they be looking for here um, in terms of, of good levels or guidance? It's a great question. A lot of people, again, they go and they buy these wearables and they start kind of seeing that data and then just kind of making presumptions off that data or comparing them. And they don't really know kind of what they're doing with them. And it can be confusing. It can be scary. It can make them have kind of faulty interpretations of the data. And so here's what the first thing they need to do. Anybody who kind of picks up uh, any type of wearable or device that's measuring HRV is that number one, you need to know what you're measuring and how you're measuring it. So for instance, let's say the Aura ring. I have one on, so obviously I'm an advocate of the Aura ring and really like it. However, if I'm going to do biofeedback, I would never choose something like an Aura ring because the sampling rate of something off of a PPG this small is going to be really bad. So it might give me a good overnight score that looks at recovery, but if I want to look at modulation of HRV, so how well can I fluctuate it by controlling my nervous system, I'd never use this Aura ring. Now, I've also had individuals who've reached out to me and they're like, all right, Dr. Wiles, I have you know my Apple Watch here and I have my aura ring and my Apple watch is giving me like a score of 120 and my aura ring is giving me like a score of 50. Why are they so far off? And I'll have to say, you need to know what you're measuring and how you're measuring it. So for instance, the Apple watch utilizes the SDNN metric. So it's the standard deviation of normal beat interval measurement. That is a great measurement, but not for short term and should never be on a watch. So your Apple watch scores really are, val- are not valid to me uh, if anybody ever presents that data. So anybody's got the Apple watch and you're checking HRV that way. It's just not a great measurement. The uh, Aura Ring utilizes the metric or algorithm, which is RMSSD. And without getting kind of too much into the woods, these are just different algorithms for looking at HRV and they're used from both a research perspective, but also from a clinical perspective. But you would not expect them to be the same. You would actually expect them to be fairly cut in half. So 150 would make a lot of sense. So know what you're measuring and know how you're measuring it. Everyone and their brother and sister is putting out a device nowadays that has HRV built into it and not all HRV sampling is created equal. So like for instance, if you're using something like an EKG, um, so it'd be like a polar H10 chest strap or I have like right here a leaf therapeutics device, which is a wearable EKG, the sampling rate for EKGs are much, much higher and therefore you're going to get typically more accurate data and be able to use them for things like biofeedback. That's why like 
include the uh, Polar H10. If you use something like the Elite HRV app, you can do biofeedback. With the Leaf device, you can do biofeedback. And that's because the sampling rate's fast enough to keep up with it in the moment. And also too, uh, and this would be the last thing that I would say, is that if you are wearing any type of device that has um, an HRV measurement built into it, you need to make sure that it is really good at filtering out artifacts. So artifact or abnormal, null beats, they're beats outside of the heart. Um, it's, it's abnormal beats that you wouldn't see kind of within kind of a normal cardiac functioning. They're removed. And so you want to have that happen because if you don't, then that's going to really skew the data in a very negative way. And so those, those are kind of the things that you really want to do first is look and find good, uh, reliable, practical types of wearables if you can. And then also make sure that you know what metric you're looking at and what you're comparing it to. And when I get into comparison, uh, this is something that I really like to, to kind of focus on and, and share with people is that so many people want to like compare it to others. And we would call that normative comparison and normative comparison is okay. It's usable, um, especially when we look at cardiac outcomes, when we look at other outcomes that have been really well researched, but from a performance-based standpoint, uh, from an optimization standpoint, it is certainly not the most uh, key feature that you should be looking at. Self-comparison here is really, really important. And I tell people all the time is that I don't give a crap like how high your HRV is. Like it's re that's really not a big deal to me as someone who sees a lot of HRV data, like the, the height of HRV is not that important. What is more important is how well can you modulate your HRV because your ability to modulate HRV demonstrates control of the nervous system, which is so much more important than you just having a high HRV. Because I've met plenty of high HRVs who are overtraining, they're overreaching, they're stressed to the max. They just happen to have a really high HRV because of all of these other different variables. But I've met other people with lower, and I put those in huge air quotes, HRV, who can modulate their HRV like crazy. And because of that, they have great control over the nervous system. They don't feel nearly as stressed as other individuals who can't modulate it. And I would take that HRV any day over something that's just high. So I know that was a lot of content that I just threw out there, but everything was just kind of spinning around in my head as, yeah. we, as we move forward. Yeah, no, that's great because that kind of sets the background. So there's, a, there's some questions that came up for me, if we can go back a little bit to when you were talking about the different types of measurements. So you mentioned, for example, that the Apple Watch, what they're using on it is not good for measuring. But I know when I was looking at your content, you were explaining how the SDNN is good for a 24-hour measurement, is it? And then the RMSSD is for a kind of on-the-go measurement, a bit like you were explaining with the H10 and the... Um, elite HRV app. So is what you're saying is that your Apple is designed to take much longer measurements, but if someone has it on their wrist, apart from the radiation, I have an Apple watch, but I generally keep it in an airplane. Mm -hmm. Apart from the radiation, if it's like constantly beeping and doing these things, is it, um, isn't it gathering data over 24 hours? What, what, so I always say it's, it's not the right measure. Right. It, it would be. So in order to calculate SDNN as your measurement, you only need five minutes. And so the information that it's spitting five out to you is five minutes worth of data. Now, if okay. you were to take it over 24 hours, the, the reason that it's important to take it over 24 hours is because it builds in the variable and factors of circadian rhythm, which are extremely important when we look at HRV. Uh, and, and that's kind of a, uh, it might be for another day, huh? because that's a really kind of extensive broad area. However, 
number in order to truly calculate SDN. And you can do it on a short-term measurement, but what you'll see is that most research studies do not find it to be nearly as strong uh, for health and performance as RMSSD. The other thing is, is if you were to manipulate your breath rate, so if you take your respiratory rate really, really low, you're going to see a very, very large fluctuation in SDNN. Like you'll see it go extremely high, whereas RMSSD will move. And that's a good thing that it's moving, but not nearly as much. And that's because the SDNN metric uh, is much more influenced by respiratory sinus arrhythmia or kind of breath fluctuations and heart rate than is RMSSD values. So if you want a good, um, and what we call it would be a good tonic phase, or we look at the tonic phase of HRV or that static phase at resting potential, RMSSD is going to be the better value because it's not influenced nearly as much as SDNN is because I can take almost anybody's SDNN and just skyrocket it just by lowering respiratory rate. And Aura uses the RMSSD, right? It does. It does. Okay. So even with Aura, what I notice is sometimes at night, there'll be this very sharp spike. Not, not that often, but all of a sudden it just kind of goes really, really high and come yes. back, comes back to how I've often wondered, is that like maybe a bad dream or like what causes that? It can be different things. Um, number one, it could be artifacts that they're not removing, which is again, one of those things that like, that's going to skew your data overall, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so your average is going to go up because of it. So you want to know, and, and you're not going to be able to know, and neither am I, it, it, whether or not it's artifact, unless I look at a couple of things. Number one, I want to see, does that spike correlate with a different dream, sorry, with a different sleep stage or awaken stage? Um, so if it goes like way up spikes or low spikes would be kind of more of what you see when you wake up, um, the HRV is a low spike, uh, then that, that actually makes a lot of sense. If you wake up and the spike goes up, that doesn't really make any sense at all. Um, because when you're actually sleep for the bulk majority of people, HRV is going to go, it's going to go higher than what you are during the day. Now, here's one other thing to kind of keep to, to keep in mind, which is kind of how HRV correlates with sleep stages. So we know with rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, as most people know it by is that your heart rate will actually naturally increase. That's going to be the time of night where you're most prone to dreaming and having nightmares. And so a lot of times people will see kind of a a huge correlation actually of that kind of negative spike. So that downward spike with REM sleep. And then right afterwards, when people go into, especially if they go into deep sleep afterwards or into some deep sleep stages, people will actually see kind of the opposite and they'll have that really high spike. So see if it's correlated with you going from REM to deep, uh, because that's actually something that's been shown in research to happen. Uh, but a lot of the times, um, in my opinion, when I've looked at people's data, when I'm consulting with them, it's, it's artifact. I mean, it's a, it's okay. a, vault. it's a void. And it's point. just a fault that hasn't been removed. Yeah. So before we kind of dive in then to how to modulate it, cause you've explained that modulation is important. Yeah. I just want people to really understand, like we know that having a higher heart rate variability is correlated with better performance. Um, And you've mentioned like for athletes and for executives, for example, they look at this. Why is that? So I understand that um, you're better able to regulate your nervous system. So presumably you're better able to deal with stress and challenges. Your emotional response is is indicating um, better vagal tone. Is that where you're talking about in terms of, because I guess there's two things, aren't there? There's athletic performance, which is much more physical, although there is a strong mental component. And then there's cognitive performance and the ability as well to kind of deal with people, right? And the ability to lead. Can you explain for for listeners why 
modulating their HRV and improving their scores, why they would do it and what they can expect to experience as a result. Absolutely. So I want people to begin to think about HRV as the best singular window we have into nervous system functioning. So when we talk about nervous system functioning, um, there are a lot of branches of our nervous system, but it starts in our CNS, which is our central nervous system, radiates down to our peripheral nervous system, and then a branch of the, of the motor division of our peripheral nervous system is our autonomic nervous system. Now that is where our sympathetic nervous system, I'm saying nervous system a thousand times, but this is kind of the trend here. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the branches of the autonomic nervous system are our sympathetic and parasympathetic. So when we think about modulation of vagal tone of HRV, when you look at that singular HRV window, that is giving you a great representation. The best one we have now that's non-invasive is a great representation of what your autonomic nervous system is, is doing or what it's trying to tell you. And basically HRV can give us great insight and window into whether or not we're flooring down the gas pedal or we're able to modulate the brake. So when I say floor down gas pedal, I'm talking about our sympathetic nervous system. That's our fight or flight response. And then when I talk about our brake, I'm talking about our parasympathetic response. And so the, a lot of times people get a little bit confused with these because they think that there needs to be what we call a balance of the nervous systems. And, I, and I, I've used that term in the past, but I'm beginning to kind of change my vernacular there. And the reason being is because we don't necessarily need them to be balanced. We need to be able to modulate them. We need to be able to press the gas pedal when we need to and utilize kind of that sympathetic overload. So when I'm working with athletes, I'm like, when you get into that game, um, like when you are ready to kind of perform at your highest, let the gas pedal floor down. You don't really need your brake unless you're kind of getting a little bit overly aroused and it's turning into an emotional expression like anger. This is my soccer players I'm thinking about that I work with. Uh, but but uh, your ability to press the brake, you don't really need it. Now, after the game, you need to be able to press that brake as best you can. For some people, uh, let's say if they're looking at uh, executive performance, cognitive performance, they might need to be able to modulate them in and out again at will. And that's the biggest problem with today's society society is that we kind of get a little bit locked into this gas pedal being all the way down. And when we try to pump the brake, or if we ever think about pumping the brake, it's just not working really well. So what is that? How does that result practically? We're stressed out of our minds. We feel it from an emotional standpoint, psychological standpoint, cognitive, and then also physiological standpoint. And so modulation of the nervous system, which is represented by HRV, is all about learning how to take back control of that brake. Because that's a lot. Most people don't have a lack of control of the gas pedal. They have a lack of control of the brake. And so through different techniques, different ways to hack it, which I'll talk about kind of like why you want technique first, and then you can hack it because that's the way you optimize through that. I can actually teach people how to relinquish control of that gas pedal and engage the brake at will kind of whenever they need it. And what we want to do through HRV training is really teach it consciously first and teach it so much that it becomes unconscious. It becomes a reflex that whenever we need it, when we get stressed, uh, when we are feeling kind of fatigued, when we're feeling X, Y, Z, that we can kind of just get into that rhythm and gear of modulating our HRV at will without having to think about it. The other way that I'll, I explain this too is that we have to think of HRV as being kind of a good indicator of our nervous system thermostat. Over time, that thermostat tends to be turned down and down and down because we experience all of these stressors. They kind of go on chronically um, because if it's acutely, we would see, yeah, 
uh, drop in HRV, but then back up to baseline. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, it's like the thermostat keeps going down. They may have started off at like a 70 and now they're going down to 60 and 50 and 40 and down and down. And, and what's happening is that the nervous system just continues to send. And I'd say nervous system, the autonomic nervous system continues to send the signal to the brain that, well, obviously this is where you want to be because we're always staying here. The gas pedal is already down. So let me just kind of turn that thermostat down, keep the sympathetic nervous system going. And, um, you know, we'll kind of, you know, it's kind of rolling dice here. Whereas with this type of training that I do, especially with HRV biofeedback, it's all about reconditioning the nervous system to turn that thermostat dial back up. So we see people who might've started at 70, they're kind of operating now at a baseline of 20. How do we get that thermostat back up to 70? And not for the number's sake, that's just a quantifiable point, which is great. Um, but what we really want is kind of the mesh of quantifiability raise in the HRV alongside sub a subjective raise. So yeah, I'm feeling better. I have more energy. I'm able to tackle stress. Somebody caught, cuts me off in traffic when I'm on the freeway. It doesn't just immediately piss me off and I'm like really frustrated okay. with them, but I can modulate kind of my emotional experience there too. Yeah. And it's difficult, isn't it? As you say, most people, certainly type A personalities, they can put their foot on the accelerator, but they don't know when to put the brakes on. And that was definitely the case for me as a corporate lawyer, because I was so used to going and, and it was kind of, you know, at such a big global law firm, it was kind of indoctrinated in you mm. that you need to sacrifice sleep. You've got to get this done for the client. And then the thing is, the problem is the next deal rolls into the next one and the next one. And I think once I had children and they were tiny, you know, I had like health visitors and things coming to my house and saying, you've got to nap during the day, you've got to kick back. And I was just in this on mode constantly. It's like, what? You know, no, look, I'm, I'm used to doing all nights. I'm fine and I can keep going. And then sure enough, it affected my mood. I had mm -hmm. depression, I experienced burnout, and then eventually it affected my, my um, physical health. But in that scenario, are you saying, because there are periods, like with athletes, right, they have to be on. There are also periods of time for people in professional jobs or stressful jobs where actually for months at a time, they have to bring it every day. So if, when you talk about modulation there, are you talking about things that are things they can do in the moment, like breath work or techniques that are pretty instant that doesn't detract from the fact that the overall thing is they need to be kind of game on? Yeah. So I would say that what we do is we practice things in the moment and then outside of the moment so that they can be conditioned to be reflexive in the future. Because a lot of the times people lose, what I say that HRV regulation is all about two different things. Number one, it's about self-awareness. And then number two, it's about self-regulation. So with self-awareness, what I mean is, is that we have to identify and use our body, use our physiology essentially as the scorecard to tell us kind of where are we at right now? Like, are we experiencing experiencing stress? Like, are we experiencing this level of overtraining, let's say for an athlete or overreaching for an athlete? We have to become self-aware of the stress response because if we don't, then we're never going to do step two, which is self-regulation. And so self-regulation really needs to come kind of in all scenarios. So when I teach people to modulate their HRV, this is kind of one of the things that I do. Let's say, for instance, when I'm using this leaf therapeutics device, the wearable EKG, when they put it on kind of right on the left breast, right above their heart, right over their heart, 
Walmart, I should say. It actually collects their baseline HRV over the first few days. And then afterwards, what it does is that whenever their HRV drops into the 20th percentile or 10th percentile, uh, then it'll actually vibrate on them. It'll go off. And that's like an alert to them to say, guess what? Your HRV is low. Take the moment now to assess the situation. Become more self-aware. Are you reading or writing like a scathing email? Are you, you know, uh, are, are, are you, you know, exor- over-exercising? Are you doing X, Y, Z? Um, are you stressed about something? Whatever it may be, use that as kind of the light bulb that goes off. And then what it does is it has you regulate your breathing and it regulates your breathing by doing a couple things. I teach three different things and this is actually all from my collaboration with Patrick McCune of Oxygen Advantage is that I work on the biomechanics of breathing. I work on changing the biochemistry of breathing and then reducing respiratory rate or changing the cadence of breathing. Because we actually know that we can elicit that arrhythmia, respiratory sinus arrhythmia, and maximize the fluctuation of heart rates. Um, So from kind of the trough up to the peak by changing those three things. And so what this device is great at is it actually will vibrate in a pattern on you. Uh, The vibration that you first experience will actually be the exhalation. So while it's vibrating, you breathe out with it and then it will stop vibrating and you take an inhale. And I'm also a huge proponent of nasal breathing. Again, another probably topic for another day. But I I, uh, consistently nasal breathe through this. And then again, when it vibrates again, you breathe out. What's great about this device, and and, and I'm not not just trying to pitch this device, I just use it all the time with with my clientele, is that it'll actually assess what's called your resonance frequency. And what resonance frequency is actually, it's called cardiac resonance or cardiac coherence is what the HeartMath Institute calls it. And basically it's the breath rate. It determines your breath rate that optimizes or maximizes heart rate variability. Ability. So it has kind of this algorithm built into it that will detect it for you. So it'll pace you on your resonant frequency rate, which oh, is so really- your personal one. It actually learns what your yes. breath rate should be. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. It learns what your breath rate should be. And so what we know from research, there's a guy, his name's Dr. Paul Lair, and actually Paul Lair um, assessed this uh, with thousands of individuals to look at what general resonant frequency rates are. Um, and these are breath rates, and we call it BPM or breaths per minute. And we found that for anywhere as high as six and a half down to as low as four breaths per minute is generally where almost all human adults have their resonant frequency at. And once you find your resonant frequency, the other thing that we know about this, which is really cool, is that over the course of your lifetime, regardless of your health status, it doesn't change. It does not modify, which is pretty neat. So you find your resonant frequency. And then after that, you breathe at that rate in order to maximize heart rate variability. And what we want to do is, again, train this in the moment, especially if we're having a stress response or even when we're not, because again, we want to make this a conditioned reflexive response so that when the body encounters something that is stressful, whether it's a mild stressor or it's a very significant stressor, we automatically kind of kick into high gear and regulate our heart rate variability. Now, I just mentioned breath work. That's just kind of one aspect. There are many other things that we can do to help modulate HRV, but we know that the single most powerful tool and we can get into the physiology of it if you'd like as well. The single most powerful tool um, is our ability to regulate our breathing. And it mm-hmm. sounds so simple. It's because it is. And that's the beauty of this is mm-hmm. that it's so simple, but uh, what we can utilize and leverage technology through heart rate variability training to kind of give us that extra oomph. Because 
Heart rate variability is really just data. It's just information. Now, what we do with that information, that's the most important aspect. And that's where heart rate variability biofeedback comes into play. Mindfulness training, meditation, all of these things can be extremely valuable tools for, again, modulating the nervous system and teaching you how to better consciously and then unconsciously control the nervous system. So the idea is eventually like you get the triggers from something like the leaf and then it's telling you when to do it. And then, you know, because I, I recorded a podcast with Patrick and he was talking about getting it down to yes. six breaths per minute. And we were talking about nasal breathing and slowing it down because obviously a lot of people, um, particularly if they're tracking it on something like an aura, their breath rate is going to be a lot higher. But mm -hmm. that's not something that you can necessarily that slow breathing rate is something that you deliberately do. You're not, nobody's ever going to be normally breathing at four to six breaths per right. minute, presumably, yes. right? You've got to really slow yes. it down actively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really great point because I've had people like send me their aura data and they're like, you've been telling us to breathe at like anywhere from four to six and a half breaths per minute. And I'm like at 12 and I'm like, 12 is freaking awesome. Like that's really good. Like if you were, if you're on your aura ring, if you saw that you were breathing at four breaths per minute, you've got some serious apnea and we need to get you in for like an OSA treatment like immediately. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, no, we, you know, in general, most adults will breathe at a rate of about 14 to 16 breaths per minute, sometimes as high is 18. And so if you're in that range with your aura ring score, I mean, that's, that's great. If you're below 14, like that's, that's also great. If you're in that like 12 to 14 range, that's great as well. But no, this, you, the respiratory sinus arrhythmia that you see, so that pattern of heart rate fluctuations that you see when you're breathing slow would be very abnormal to see when you are uh, at rest and not manipulating your heart rate. Um, that would be kind of a very extreme fluctuation. The reason that we do that is because again, it's maximizing vagal tone. So basically our vagus nerve, which is our 10th cranial nerve, there are two cranial nerves that run up our spine and into our central nervous system. They innervate almost every organ in our body. When we stimulate that nerve, that is kind of like our break. That is our parasympathetic break. And the best way to do that is to really slow the heart rate down and speed it up kind of simultaneously. And then also to stretch out the receptors um, that innervate uh, the vagus nerve in, within our lungs. And they typically sit most predominantly at the lower part of our lungs, which is why Patrick and I are huge advocates for diaphragmatic breathing, breathing very low, breathing very slow, is because the more we can stretch that vagus nerve and stimulate that vagus nerve, the more it's going to send that direct signal to the brain that, yep, it's time to break. You're okay. You're safe. The mountain lion's not about to eat you. And the reason it's not about to eat you is because you would never stop and take a slow breath if he was about to attack. You ramp it up. So obviously, mm. you must be in a safe place. And the brain's very smart and it's very stupid all in one. We just have to know kind of how to train it in the most appropriate way. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what would happen then if you decided instead to do something more rhythmic like um, Wim Hof style breathing? Um, mm -hmm. what, what happens there? Because that's very stimulatory, isn't it? Yes. It's kind of a hormetic stress effectively. It is. You got it. That's what it is. So I do a lot of intermittent hypercapnic hypoxic training or IAHHT, which is one of, uh, again, Patrick's things. I'm, um, me, Patrick and I work a lot closely together. So I utilize a lot of his strategies, but Wim Hof's style of breathing is very similar to that. Um, it's a, it's not a hypercapnic type training, like I just mentioned, but these are both sympathetic stressors. They're sympathetic arousal that help us to break the nervous system down so that we can rebuild it back stronger. So just as you would with kind 
kind of you know um, cardiovascular exercises or muscular strength resistance training uh, it, it's, it's, it's the same effect just on the nervous system as opposed to kind of on muscular tissue so yeah when I, I I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of utilizing kind of these more sympathetic arousals because what I see is is that yes HRV when you're engaging in Wim Hof style breathing or IHT will go way way down but then about an hour two hours for me most of the time about an hour afterwards I see HRV creep way up um, so it's basically building resilience through this stressor so I'm a huge fan of it I um, mean I think that you have to kind of know thyself as well um, so if you're somebody who's already extremely sympathetically aroused especially if you're someone who has like panic um, if you're someone who has high anxiety those can be very damaging if you do them too often and too much uh, because basically it's saying gas pedal go on even faster than than what it was before so I like always tell people to exercise caution it's not for everybody but if you feel like your nervous system is resilient enough and you've utilized enough HRV training to kind of know how your nervous system is going to respond then it can be a really great method interesting thank you and so if um I want to talk to you about some more um uh, mechanisms that you can use to improve HRV. But before sure. we do that, let's say so, because we were using that example of like a stressed out person who's working very hard or they've got these challenges going on, they can use the breath in the moment. Let's, let's say that they understand how to modulate their HRV. When their HRV starts to improve, if they're still under that stressful period, so they're still underslept, um, they've still got those challenges going on, how is this going to benefit them? Is it just on the emotional regulation side or is it actually physiologically within the whole body things that the systems are going to work better as well? Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of an all around thing, and I, and I don't want to say that you know this type of training is a panacea and a cure all for everything, uh, but it will almost always it will always I should say affect us both psychologically, cognitively, and physiologically. Um, so because you are what you're doing is you're taking a direct kind of practical uh, no what, you, what I should say is you're taking a direct signal, sending it through your autonomic nervous system to your central nervous system to say okay you have the ability to attack kind of what's in front of you if you need to, but you also have the ability to allow things to happen um, if they need to. So we might refer to this in mindfulness as a level of acceptance. Um, and, and what I like about this is that you actually see kind of the same effect from a physiological standpoint through heart rate variability modulation as you do through meditation. Um, it just doesn't take nearly as long. Um, and, it, and for sometimes for meditation, it can be really difficult for people. And it's, I'm a big advocate of utilizing mindfulness and utilizing meditation. However, uh, for a lot of people in that moment, in that situation that they're in, that they need to either get out of or be able to manage or better control, sometimes engaging in mindfulness meditation isn't extremely effective. So regulating their physiology, regulating their emotional experience by manipulating heart rate variability and respiratory rate can be super helpful to get them out of that situation. Uh, I'm not sure if that answered you directly, but uh, it may have been an indirect answer. Did I cover that or was there yeah, more? Yeah, no, that did. That did too. Like the breath is basically the entry point, isn't it? It's the easiest yeah. way. And actually, I often use breath work as a entry point into meditation because it makes it so much easier to sleep oh, in yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. um, but I guess if they if they if they're actively modulating it, my question is then, what will they see in terms of their own cognitive performance? Like, are they going to mm -hmm. see that they can connect the right and left brain hemispheres more? Because obviously, when you're in that sympathetic state 
presumably you're much more left brain dominant and you're very analytical and you're thinking mm-hmm. and you're focused and creativity is then off, right? And you can't necessarily see the bigger picture. You can't formulate solutions, I would say, in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. Does it help to kind of connect the brain better almost as well? Yeah. So this is really interesting research that we've just found out over the course of the last like five or six years, but we actually know that there's innervations of the vagus nerve within the corpus callosum. So the corpus callosum is the webbing that ties in the different left and right hemispheres. And so uh, kind of coming back to that one is that we know that that stimulation of vagal tone or, or the afferent nerves of the vagus nerve can actually open up connections in the corpus callosum, which is a really cool thing because basically if we have one that's kind of being shut off, due to kind of paris, uh, sorry, sympathetic overload, again, the brake pad is stimulating the vagus nerve. And when we stimulate the vagus nerve, it can help to directly open up that connection within the corpus callosum to the left and right hemispheres. So we see people becoming um, less analytically dominant and able to kind of mesh their worlds. I almost say like this is a little bit like microdosing psilocybin, but doing it in a, in a way that just kind of takes your breath and doesn't necessarily take any exogenous substances. Uh, but, you know, it's it's... It's, I think we need more research on it, but I think that it is really interesting to see kind of people do um, perform better on cognitive tests. Um, they feel less muscular tension. Um, so we know that it actually, the sympathetic overdrive is really correlated with muscular tension and enhanced chronic pain. So I actually utilize this a lot with individuals with chronic pain, HRV biofeedback, because uh, we see less muscular tension and less muscular mm-hmm. bracing. Uh, we also see people um, become more articulate with kind of their verbiage. So I always say for like podcasters or anybody who's utilizing their words a lot um, or executives or, you know, lawyers or anybody who may be doing a lot of talking, then it's a really great way to kind of help center yourself, especially before you have like a speech. So there's kind of like all these really cool benefits um, from a optimization standpoint, but yes, from a cognitive standpoint, from a physiological or muscular bracing standpoint, we do see a lot of change when people are able to modulate their HRV and do it well. So what you're saying is it's kind of a performance hack, right? You can do it right before you're about to present or, and that's generally through breathwork techniques that you teach to actually physically modulate it. Yeah. I mean, I'll even give you kind of what I do. So, you know, when Ben and I, Ben Greenfield and I, when we podcast each week, or actually when I'm giving like, let's say a keynote presentation on heart rate variability training at a conference, one of the things that I'll do is for about 15 minutes before I podcast or 15 minutes before I give a speech, I'll actually engage in some diaphragmatic breathing, um, low cadence breathing. I'll actually do a little bit of hypercapnic training as well. So I'll enhance kind of my overall um, kind of uh, chemosensitivity to CO2. And then I'll also like do some different hacks as well. So I'll utilize like my new calm device. If anybody's familiar with that, it's an amazing neuroacoustic software that uses biofrequency resonance that I found like maximizes my HRV when I'm already doing um, HRV breath work. And then the other thing I do is actually utilize a little bit of hormesis or cold exposure. And I'm not like necessarily doing a, um, a, a full like, uh, you know, cold plunge or anything, or even a cold shower, but actually there's some crazy cool research that if you take like little ice cubes and put them on the left side or on the right side, because you have vagal stimulation, both on the left and the right side, that you can actually cool down the vagus nerve and stimulate vagal tone with just a little bit of ice. So a little bit of cold exposure on the neck. It's very interesting research. Now, it's not like you're going to, you know, put a cold pack on your, on your neck and see your HRV go from 50 to 120, but I've seen it modulate up five or six points uh, outside of me, even breathing um, or well, I'll breathe, but slowing down the cadence of my breathing. 
marketing. So these, there's these little hacks that you can kind of include, which are either hormetic or just kind of manipulating your environment a little bit uh, to stimulate vagal tone. And for me, it's really good just to kind of help relax me if I'm feeling like overly amped before, you know, a speech or overly amped before a meeting or whatever it may be. So yeah, there's some really cool things out there that you can do for it. Yeah, that's very cool. When you, you just mentioned hypercatnic, mm-hmm. can you explain what that is? Yeah. So hypercapnic training is very similar. So I, I use buteco style breathing. So buteco okay. style breathing or oxygen advantage breathing is really all about nasal only breathing. So we only breathe in and out through the nose to create more resistance and nitric oxide stimulation as a vasodilative response. And then I also uh, do very light breathing in order to create a sense of air hunger. And what we actually know from research is that uh, via the Bohr effect, uh, with the Bohr effect meaning that uh, we can actually release oxygen from hemoglobin by enhancing a CO2 environment. So CO2 essentially works as a key to hemoglobin molecules to unbind oxygen. That when we do that, we actually have more delivery of oxygen throughout the body to muscular tissues, but also to the brain. And that can actually stimulate what we call the baroreflex. Now the baroreflex is a blood pressure modulation system. Um, it actually modulates our blood pressure for us when it's functioning properly. But when we're stressed, the baroreflex tends to get a little bit out of whack. And that's because we're secreting things like norepinephrine, cortisol, epinephrine. And so our blood pressure system goes out of whack, which means our blood pressure goes up. By utilizing kind of the power of CO2 or creating this hypercapnic state, we can actually modulate that system downward um, through the release of of a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. Now, acetylcholine is the biggest driver of the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is what releases a lot of acetylcholine to help pump the brakes within our nervous system. And so I'll utilize kind of that style of training and breathing in an effort really to modulate acetylcholine, which will therefore represent itself in feeling calmer, lowering my blood pressure, having me um, a lot stay alert because I want the gas pedal on when I'm before I'm about mm. to give a speech, but I want to be able to press the brake when I want to. So I want to feel that sense of relief, but also be pumped up. And that's the state of flow. That's the state that mm. I train my athletes in when they're about to go out onto the field. I just don't get into mo- to too much of the biochemistry because with a lot of them, they're like, yeah, don't really need all that. tell me <laughs> what to do. <laughs> yeah, exa- <laughs> exactly. But yeah, that's how you can use CO2 as a vagal modulator. Okay. Amazing. Um, and in terms of other things that you can do, so to modulate HRV, are there specific, like you see my sauna behind me, does yes. sauna helps? Uh, you mentioned cold showering. Um, can you kind of dive into a few things that people can kind of integrate apart from breath work and say meditation and mm-hmm. any supplements that they can take or natural yeah. compounds that they can include that help with that engagement or yeah, sure. conversation effectively, isn't it, between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system? Yeah, there's so much good stuff out there. And I can't wait for the next like 10 years or so for more things to come out kind of from a nutritional supplementation standpoint, but as well as like an environmental standpoint. One of the things that we know when we look at research, um, you know, yes, breath work, resonant frequency, breathing, heart rate variability, biofeedback, the things that we've mentioned are extremely important. But one of the things that is probably equally as important, if not more important, is exercise. 
realize, and I know that sounds like such a simplistic answer, but it's something that really, really needs to be noted. And when they've looked at research, what they've found is, is that modulation of HRV um, is, 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 is actually much better when you engage in certain types of exercise, but you need to do so when you're not overreaching or overtraining. So if you're doing, let's say like a lot of CrossFit or metabolic conditioning, those are the people that I always, ha always have checking HRV more so than others, um, just because they're the ones who are much more likely to kind of drain their nervous system than others because of the amount of training they do and the intensity of training. However, one of the things that we see in research is that the utilization of HIIT training or high intensity interval training more so than any other type of exercise has the best hormetic effect on nervous system functioning. And when they've looked at the research um, and comparing kind of sustained cardiovascular exercise or aerobic exercise with more high intensity interval burst, they see that every single time um, HRV is going to drop about equally with both of them, sometimes more so with HIIT training because of the level of intensity. However, when it comes to recovery and when it comes to rebuilding the nervous system, HIIT by far is the highest. Now, that's not to say that other types of exercise don't have their, you know, warrant for other kind of goals, but from a nervous system reset standpoint, HIIT can be the best. But you just never want to do HIIT if you have a low HRV um, in comparison to yourself um, that day. That's why I have people always checking their morning readiness scores with like the Elite HRV app or looking at their Aura Ring. And I use what's called uh, my 2040 rule, which means that if your HRV has dropped 20% below your baseline, so you have to do a little bit of math, but if let's say we have 100 uh, and you've dropped down to 80, then that should be a little flag that goes off and says, okay, like my nervous system is telling me that I haven't fully recovered back to baseline. Um, maybe I should take it a little easier that day. It's not to say don't work out. However, if, you, if I see people drop to that 40%, that's where I'm saying, okay, now it's time for you to pump the brakes. If you went from your baseline, baseline's normally 100 and now you're at a 60 today or 60 or below, then I want you to take an off day. And when I tell CrossFitters that they hate me, <laughs> but, but a lot <laughs> of them, they, they hate me, but I'm always like, too, uh, you're going to end up taking a lot more days off, mm, um, not by your own will. Yeah. If you don't listen to your body, because the amount of physical injury that can occur when nervous system is, is compromised is, is really high. So all that goes to say is that HIIT training is really, really good. Ut utilizing can other just on HIIT training yeah. first, because mm -hmm. people sure. sometimes like HIIT training is used so widely, whereas yes. initially it was started, wasn't it, in terms of like cyclists and pushing really, mm -hmm. really hard at peak, yes. peak outputs and yep. dialing back. In this context, what do you mean by HIIT training? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a good point. So when we say high intensity interval training, it can look so different for, for everybody, but I kind of utilize more of like Tabata sets. Um, and then I also utilize a little bit more, um, of a, of a shorter time frame of bursts. Um, so when I'm, when I'm working with kind of like my athletes or individuals who are engaging in hit training, it may actually look very different depending on if I'm training an athlete versus if I'm training, let's say an executive who doesn't have as much of, you know, the athletic performance performance aspect, or that's not a desire for them. But in general, what I normally do is, is I do about anywhere from about eight to 10 rounds and, and eight to 10 rounds. I'll explain that here in just a second, but I normally do about a minute on or sorry, no, I've changed it 30 seconds on. And when that 30 seconds is a, an all out burst, I mean, it is a close to 100% as you can. So nothing so, in the tank at the end of that 30 seconds, right? Nothing in the tank. You give it all you've got. And then for two to three minutes, so actually build 
in a lot more rest with my type mm-hmm. of headset. Some people will go a minute on and then like a minute to two minutes off. I like to do like 30 seconds on and then about two minutes to three minutes, sometimes four minutes, listen to the body off. And this is something that Ben Greenfield and I have talked about a lot because we think that a lot of people mess up hit training or they'll damage the nervous system because they're not giving their bodies enough adequate time in between sets to rest. So I give a little bit more time. And then I'll just, again, I do that for about eight to 10 rounds. So in general, I mean, it doesn't take more than about 15 to 20 minutes max for this type of workout. And I never do it more than three times a week. Most people are going to do it about twice a week. And what people will generally eight see- Eight to 10 rounds, so eight, eight rounds of work at 30 seconds with two minutes recovery. So it's kind yeah. of like a 30 minute workout. And yeah. is that, when you say like, almost like Tabata style, so is this um, using- physical training as in body weight training or is it just or cardiovascular work in terms of either sprinting or cycling or swimming yep. No, it just, it just depends on the individual. So for most people, it's going to be like the, the first round is going to be sprints. The second round is going to be push-ups. The third round is going to be kettlebell oh, swings, okay. the fourth round. So it varies. Oh, so I like to, yep, really yep. Yeah. I like to vary the training. Yes. Yeah. And, and, it, and it's difficult, you know, always the sprints are the hardest. Um, so I book in sprints. I put sprints first and sprints are always last. And when they get to the sprints in the last <laughs> one, they're evil. fast. <laughs> so, I know, I know. I love it. So um, cruel to add them at yes, the end. Yes. But, but people, you know, after the end, like they're, they're gassed, but they feel so good after that, like hour they're done with hit. And then what I tell people too, is that use your HRV as a metric for recovery after you're done. So when you get really high intensive for, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, it may take your HRV about an hour and a half or so to normalize. If you're doing just kind of like sustained cardiovascular exercise or resistance training, especially you should see your HRV stabilize within about 30 to 45 minutes. If it's a rather intensive workout, 45 minutes to an hour, but really no longer than an hour for your HRV to can return back to baseline. If it's not, then we kind of have more questions that we ask um, whether or not kind of you've overtrained or kind of, is there some type of um, uh, exercise induced asthma? or whatever it may be that might be kind of impairing nervous system repair. Uh, but in general, that's what you'd like to see with HIT. It's about an hour and a half for, for a bulk majority of people. If you're able to restore your HRV to baseline within an hour, you're, you're one of those like elite athletes, like Olympic style athletes. Um, you, yeah. don't, you don't see that very often. Most people, their heart rate stays elevated for a while. For a while. And so you would be monitoring that with either the leaf or presumably with the H10 because for aura, you've got to wait and get overnight data basically. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of people, you can run what's called a moment with the aura ring, Mm. which like looks at it over like a a short period of time, but the accuracy is really bad because the sampling rate's really bad uh, for that. For overnight, it it can be very accurate. Uh, Yeah. So I do either the leaf device or I do the uh, polar H10 chest strap with, with those devices. I will say it's like, don't like if you're wearing them while you work out, like just expect like your HRV to be in the red, to be tanked that whole time. That's okay. It's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Some people get so confused. They're like, so should I be like trying to regulate my HRV when I'm working out? I'm like, no, let the gas pedal like go down to the ground. And then afterwards, let your body repair, like then try to get back up into baseline. But when you're ready to perform, like let's not villainize the sympathetic nervous system. Like the sympathetic nervous system can be like our, our, our best friend when 
when we're trying to escape kind of threatful situations or when we're like ready to perform at our highest, like we want that sympathetic nervous system to be on the floor, but we also want to know that we have the ability to press the brake when we want to press the brake. And that's kind of the biggest thing from a cognitive standpoint is that when you know you can regulate your HRV, when you know you can press the brake kind of at will, then your level of uh, performance is going to go out the roof compared to when you feel like, oh, I have no control over my stress response. Mm. So interesting. So for everyone, exercise is one of the best ways, that kind of yeah. high intensity exercise to actually improve your HRV. So what about if, if somebody, you're if you're able? Yeah. So I, I guess the question then would be, if somebody's looking at their data, you mentioned like a hundred. And if you go down, how does somebody understand what their baseline is? Because maybe they're beginning to track it when they're already in a, in a challenging block of, of life or work. How do they know what their baseline really is? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So it's, it, 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 there's so many variables that come into play as to why HRV is where it's at for you. I mean, there, there are things regarding age, there are things regarding height and weight. And I mean, there's so many different variables. However, what you want to do is, is that in general, I tell people is that you want to look at a baseline over the last two weeks, um, about two weeks worth of time is a really good enough buffer room to give you a great look into how are you performing in this moment from a nervous system perspective. I don't like to say performing. What is your baseline um, uh, from a, from a two week perspective? And so I tell people go back around the next the last two weeks and look at your average score. The aura ring will like update it for you. The leaf device always updates it for you, which is really good. Your polar H10 will update it for you. Um, so, so, you know, it, you need to know kind of how are you performing in the here and now and the here and now is really within the last 14 days within the last two weeks. Um, that doesn't mean it's not going to change. It doesn't, it, it will change the more and more you train it. Um, you know, I've seen people during this COVID-19 crisis, I've seen lower HRVs than I've ever seen for people, for myself as well, because this is a very uh, stressfully taxing time of time. I think from a communal time, like this is really hitting on people's nervous system, the inability to really kind of engage in community and relationship like they're used to. And so there are some things that are uh, somewhat out of our hands and out of our control, uh, but we can still utilize that baseline data for great levels levels of information. Amazing. And I guess I've just got a couple more questions because you've shared so much if that's yeah. okay. Um, what is the best time of day for people? So obviously aura is tracking it at night mm -hmm. if you have it, but if you want to use a device that's going to give you feedback straight away, what's the best time of day and how often should you take it if it's, if you're looking to get improvements? Yeah, the biggest thing is consistency. So the time of day that you take it isn't going to manipulate the numbers that much. In general, what I see, and this is a really interesting thing, is that people's morning scores are, are typically higher than their evening scores. They get stressed throughout the day. So their evening scores are, 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 are typically lower. But for a lot of people, and I think this is because of the, the dawn effect, and I'll explain that here in just a second. For a lot of people, their higher scores actually don't come until like 10 or 11 in the morning, as opposed to like if they tested it at 6am or 7am. And the reason being is because we also know that blood sugar fluctuations are going to affect your overall HRV. So blood glucose variability has a huge correlation with HRV. And a lot of that is because of cortisol output. And so uh, I tell people to like, just be consistent with it. It's okay if the dawn effect is actually affecting your HRV. But if you test it in the morning, um, and you want to keep that as consistent, if that's the best thing for you, 
you behaviorally, then test in the morning. So I do. But if I test my blood, not my blood glucose, if I test my HRV at let's say like 6 a.m. compared to, and I generally wake up around 5.30 or so, 5, 5.30. If I test it at 6 a.m. and then I test it at 10 almost reliably, I see a higher HRV at 10 a.m. than I do at 6 a.m. But I also see blood sugar scores being very different as well. I might, you know, wake up with, you know, an 80 on blood sugar if I'm looking at like, you know, continuous glucose monitor. And then at 10, I might be down to, you know, 72, 70 or so. And so I, and I see a big correlation there and it's seen in the research as well. So just all that to say is just be consistent with it, but to know that there are things that are going to affect your HRV. Now, if you're doing biofeedback with your HRV, then uh, it, again, it really doesn't matter when you practice it. You just want to be consistent with your practice and you don't want to just do it for like a minute a day. Like if you really want to entrain the nervous system to respond reflexively, then what the research says, I'm going to give you the real uh, sorry, the ideal. And then I'm going to give you the real, the ideal from research says about 20 to 25 minutes a day. And some people will say twice a day in order to really train and entrain HRV. However, I also know that for most people, that's not realistic. They're not going to do 25 minutes, let alone 50 minutes like this. That sounds bizarre to people. So I tell people that if you can do this 10 to 15 minutes a day, then that right there is a really good spot. Like you might not see as significant of a results and change of HRV as you might, if you did it 50 15 minutes a day, but if you but if you did it for a short period of time, 10 to 15 minutes, and you could allot that time, then you'll see significant changes. And again, you can do that really at any time. With the Leaf device, the great thing about it is I can throw it on in the morning, um, and then it'll train me all throughout the day. It'll give me that subtle reminder every single time my HRV drops to go ahead, now train it back up, modulate it back up. And every single time I do that, that's a reward for the brain. The brain receives that acetylcholine, it receives that dopamine, it loves it, it's receiving that message that you're you're safe, that you're protected and look at you, you're able to control your nervous system. And that's why I've seen resilience in building my HRV over the years. Uh, and then, yeah, I've seen it drop a little bit during COVID time, but I've been modulating it back up for the past maybe three or four months just by putting more extended time into practice. Amazing. And have you noticed anything like if you're, if you get better at this and you're modulating your HRV effectively, does it affect your energy levels? Do you find that now you need less sleep? Like you mentioned, you get up at 5.30 most days. I don't know whether you're going to bed early or what your sleep and your circadian rhythms mm -hmm. like, but do you notice feedback in that respect? I do. I do. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I generally go to bed pretty early, um, but early by my standards around nine, nine thirty. Um, so, uh, so I'm getting a fairly uh, like quantity of sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there, uh, but quality of sleep has much improved and I see, you know, better overnight HRV. And I'd love to, I know you were asking earlier about supplements, but then I only got into exercise. So I can speak to supplements if you wanted to, if we have, if we have time. Yeah, for let's it. quickly finish off supplements. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'll jump into that in just a second. But what I was going to say is that, yes, I've seen improved levels of energy, less fatigue, especially afternoon fatigue. Like mm. I, I had to cut myself off of coffee in the afternoon. And by afternoon, I mean like past 12 PM. I had to do that a couple of years ago just because it would affect my sleep at night because I tend to be a fairly slow oxidizer of coffee. And so I've, no, I've just noticed that I kind of replaced um, my, my coffee with HRV training and with my new calm and some other devices that have been helpful. And I feel like I have way more energy in the afternoon without any of the side effects and crash, but back to the supplementation. So a lot of people really ask me about how can they supplement with things to affect their HRV? And I say, okay, have foundational things already kind of in place, like have a breathwork practice, a resonant frequency practice, learn how to modulate your HRV. And then what we really 
really want to do is kind of really focus on uh, inflammation and, and more specifically kind of overall cortisol output. And so a lot of the supplements that I recommend, I typically recommend for nighttime. And I used to recommend like a host of different supplements. So things like ashwagandha, reishi mushroom, phosphatidylserine. Um, uh, what else was I recommending? Different like magnesium. Uh, there were so many things that I was, I was offering kind of as a supplemental pack. And then again, I have no affiliation with this company. I want to tell people that right off the get-go, but Qualia, um, the Neurohacker Collective company, um, Qual the, uh, they make Qualia Mind. They just came out with a supplement like a couple months ago called Qualia Night. And it has all of those things, phosphatidylserine, uh, ashwagandha, Wakanda. It's got reishi mushroom. Um, it's got so many other different things that are just not coming to mind right now. Um, however, that is like my go-to nighttime supplementation is that. And then also too, I've noticed that when I take like a full spectrum CBD, and I typically take a fairly high dose of CBD at night, about hundred milligrams, uh, anywhere from 50 to hundred milligrams that I see substantial improvements in my heart rate variability because I get better deep sleep. And for most people, the longer you can extend your deep sleep, uh, the better you're going to have an HRV. So I went from anywhere having about, mm, about an hour and then 15 minutes, hour to hour, 15 minutes a night of deep sleep to now. I mean, it's almost every single night. It's two hours minimum, two and a half hours, close to three hours is about the average. And again, I don't, just accredit it to the supplementation, um, but the inclusion of like qualia night, the inclusion of uh, some CBD, like have really helped to stable my level of inflammation. Um, should there be any, my HSCRP is super, super low, but if there is any, um, but especially cortisol output uh, and managing cortisol output is an extremely important thing to do if you want to manage HRV well. And, and I do that mostly from a recovery standpoint, not necessarily from a stress management standpoint, but from a recovery standpoint, because I'm that every night you're taking or is there any attenuation with it in terms of do you rotate yeah, I do. I, I don't take it every single night. No, I do okay. CBD probably five nights a week. And then Qualia night actually has you only take it five nights a week and take two days off. So I will do typically like two days. I kind of use the weekends as a way to kind of come off of it. And then sometimes too, and what I've been toying around with for probably like the last week or two is like only doing it like PRN. So like as needed. Um, and the reason being is because I am, I'm someone, I'm not a big supplement guy and, and I'm not a big supplement guy because I don't believe in them. I actually do. But I'm also someone who doesn't want to overutilize something and become mm -hmm. overly adjusted to it. Um, and so I, I don't want my nervous system just to expect it. So for me, kind of whatever I can do more behaviorally, um, more kind of uh, endogenously, I go for as opposed to exogenously. But it's not to say that I don't you know, play around with some stuff. And I've tinkered with so many different things. And what I have found too, and this is this goes to any supplement and any, anything from a dietary consideration as well is that like there are some things that affect me majorly but then affect like nobody else or barely anybody else and then vice versa so like ps100 or phosphatidylserine if i take that at night my, my hrv is going to be increased by 10 15 sometimes 20 points like automatically i know that it's going to be above baseline whereas i've had other people take ps100 and nothing um so i think it just it really just depends on your nervous system and body's response to these supplements but for me i've just kind of found the cocktail that works best. It works. So it's kind of tinkering with it. And the CBD, what supplement do you use for that? So I use uh, like the brand. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I use I use one uh, by a company called Medterra. Um, so Medterra is actually out of California. They they were a small company. Now they're a huge company. Um, I, initially, I was just taking the uh, like the pure CBD with no THC, so it wasn't full spectrum. Um, and I noticed some marginal effects there. But when I started taking full spectrum, for me, that's when I really started to see a lot more amplified effect. And so I take that each night. I was going to say I get the uh, three. 3000 milligram bottle. So the heavy, heavy duty bottle. And then I take about a hundred milligrams a night. Um, so it typically is that like in an oil or water based? Mm-hmm. Is it yeah, dropped t- under the tongue or yeah, tincture? tincture. Yep, it's a tincture. You just uh, <laughs> I hate the time. taste of those things. <laughs> They're yes, so the taste herby. of weed. <laughs> right. yeah, they are. So they, it tastes herby. like weed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, they are really. But oh, yeah. I guess, yeah, they work. So, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you for all of that. I think we have covered so much. Um, for oh, yeah. people to kind of, we've like canted through it for people to get started with. Um, the best way in terms of, I get asked this a lot. So someone that wants to start tracking their HRV and they're thinking, shall I get an aura ring or shall I go for something that's actually an instant feedback that they can mm-hmm. do? Like you mentioned the H10, where do you think is the best place for someone to start? So I'll go by finances first. If you have the ability to to financially pay for an aura ring and then also get more of like a biofeedback device, like that's going to be the biggest win-win because, you know, something like an aura ring, what's great about it is that you're not just getting HRV data, but you're getting everything in regards to sleep and latency of sleep and, you know, kind of all of these other data points. So I really like it for that. Um, however, if you want practice, um, if you don't want just data, um, because that's what aura ring is, is just giving you data. It's not a way to help you better modulate your, your, your HRV other than just kind of letting you know that you should or should not be modulating your HRV. You should, all, all of us should. But the thing is, is like if you have the ability to finance and go and pay for something like Leaf Therapeutics or Polar H10, then do that as well. If you had to choose one or the other, again, I'm a little bit biased on this because this is what I do for a living. Uh, and I would say get something that teaches you how to better train your, your, your nervous system and train your HRV. So I would say, you know, the Leaf Therapeutics device, it's like 250 to 300. So it's a little bit more pricey, but still a great deal for what it does. Um, as opposed to like, if you got like a poor H10, like I have here, uh, these are like 80 bucks, 90 bucks. And then you can, that's 90, 80 or 90 US dollars. And then you uh, get like the elite HRV app, which is free and uh, it's phenomenal. It has biofeedback built into it. Um, so I, that's, that's kind of my, my go-to. And if I say, if you had to choose one or the other, I would choose a biofeedback device. And then uh, if you could do both of them, do both of them because it's just such great data points. And, you know, here's what I say to you is that you can come see someone like me, like in clinic, um, and it costs you anywhere from about 180 to upwards of $300 an hour, or you could just spend that and get it one time and train with something like this. Now, Mm -hmm. it's not to say what I do in clinic isn't um, different than this. It's very different. I mean, it's using clinical grade, you know, equipment, but we're talking $25,000 worth of equipment compared to 250 bucks, which is like essentially a session with a biofeedback practitioner. So these are well worth it um, to just train at home. And if you feel like you need more specialized training, especially if you have like a clinical disorder like panic, uh, PTSD, um, chronic pain, anything like that, then seeking out a biofeedback practitioner, psychologist, or, you know, anybody who, who has that as a part of their certification is a, is a good idea. 
to help you. And the leaf actually gives you, it communicates with you, doesn't it? And tells you that you mm -hmm. need to do something. Whereas the H10, you've got to go physically into the elite right. HRV app and actually. Right. Then yeah. You got it. it. You, you never have to open your app with this thing. Mm. I mean, you just feel it vibrating on you, which is really good. It's also too, if anybody's like me and I know like you too, Angela concerned with kind of EMF around the heart, which is a concern of mine. You can put this in Bluetooth mode. You can't get haptic feedback because it's just collecting data, but that data can be really important. The, the creator of this, his name's Rohan Dixit. He's the CEO. He actually had the intention of creating the lowest EMF producing device that he could that still used Bluetooth. So yes, it does use Bluetooth. And I'm, I'm also weary about that. However, he did create it with the lowest EMF producing Bluetooth that he could out there, which is like a really, really old generation of Bluetooth, but it works enough to connect it and keep it at a high enough sampling rate. So where, yes, you can have it on you, um, but also and not use the, the phone or you can have your phone on you and look at it. But a lot of times I just have it in Bluetooth mode because for me now I've, uh, I've trained it so much that I'm not as concerned with training it. I'm more concerned with like the data and just like looking at the data and watching for different trends. Yeah, sure. Amazing. Thank you so much for all of that. Where can people find more about you, Jay? Yeah, Because um, I know sure. you run training courses as well. I'm actually going to be Indeed. doing one with you coming up. So please link to where people can find and connect with you. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me some different places. So on Instagram, it's at Dr. J Wiles. That's D-R-J-A-Y-W-I-L-E-S. You can also find me on my, I was going to say my two websites. One is my like personalized website, drjwiles.com, where I do individual consulting, as well as my business and consulting agency, which is Thrive Wellness and Performance. That's www.thrive-wellness.com. We offer things like we're actually offering, yes, the first masterclass on HRV, which is a six-week live session class. And we're going to be offering a lot more because we had, we filled up our class very fast. And so we're going to offer more of those. So please be on the lookout, sign up for the next waiting list for when the next group comes out, if, especially if you want to take a deep dive into HRV, or if you're like a health coach and you want to better utilize HRV from a health coaching perspective, this would be really, really important for you because we're seeing people really looking to how can we quantify and provide data metrics to our physiological and psychological functioning. And so this is going to be a very valuable tool for you. So yeah, I, uh, that's, that's where you can find me. And I'd, I'd love to talk with you and consult with you. Amazing. Thank you so much. I will link to all of that in the show notes. And awesome. thanks so much again for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much, Angel. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.